Hello everyone. I'm going to start us off with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season, for this time of change. Some of it beginning this very morning. We are grateful that we can interact more freely as we worship you, that we can sing and lift our voices in song. The kids are off from school now, so the holidays are kicking in. Father, we just ask that you bless us however we are processing all these changes. Be with each and every one of us. Draw us near, Father. Help us to be at peace in your presence. Help us to be still. Open our hearts so that we may be attentive to your spirit. Come and touch us. Expand our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, okay. I may not have a voice left after that singing, but wasn't that amazing? It's, um, I don't know about you, it had an amazing effect on me. I wasn't expecting that. The first time in how long, 18 months, however long it is, that I can sing. You don't know until you miss it. Anyway, the other good thing is I can see most of your faces. This is awesome. You know what that means though, that means I'm going to be expecting some kind of interaction. I want nods, I want shakes of the head if you don't agree with me, you know. Uh, so this is going to be awesome, it's been masks on. Those of you with masks on, I can still see your eyes, that's good. We're, we're doing well. Hi, my name is Deji, I'm a member of the church here, part of a preaching team. Um, there are no barriers between us. That's awesome. Big thanks to June for reading that for us from 1 Samuel. Um, I just think this story, uh, Jonathan's story, is an amazing one that we can use to cap off the series we've been doing here at St. John's on being peacekeepers. Um, by the way, if you haven't been coming to St. John's or if you've missed them, we've spent eight weeks, this, is, this will be the eighth week, eight weeks, different talks by different people on reconciliation, on being peacekeepers. And um, we've been blessed over the last two months. I want to recommend those talks to you if you haven't seen them. They're still online on the website, they're still on YouTube. Um, if you've missed one, that's one too many, trust me, they, they, they are brilliant. Every single person who's spoken before today has been excellent. <laughs> right. For my part, this morning, um, I'm going to camp out on the why. We've had a lot about different strategies, how to go about reconciliation, the things to do, the do's, the don'ts, all wonderful. But this morning, I wanted to spend some time thinking about why. Two whys, really. A small why, a why question, and then a big why question. So the small why question is actually, why do things just always seem to go wrong all the time? And whether the Bible has anything to say about that. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that. The bigger Q question, though, is, that concerns our motivation. Why should we be peacemakers? Why should we? Why should you even attempt it? And I think the way we answer that question is very important. So, 
Daryl Jonathan's story today's passage has a lot to tell us because the truth of it is reconciliation, making peace is really difficult. I mean, when it's theoretical, it's fine, but when you've got a live person or two live people with practical issues that you need to get over, it is really tough. Um, and here in this church, we are not immune. We're not exempt from this. We have our own disputes. We have conflict and issues. And sometimes they can be very serious, unsettling, disruptive even. As I stand here before you, my own family and I are grappling with issues within the church. And we're having to engage in some really frank discussions, a lot of soul searching. So perhaps more than usual, more than ever, this talk is possibly as much for me as it is for everyone here today. But I do hope it has a personal resonance for each and every one of us. Let me start with a smaller why question. Why does conflict arise? Why do things go wrong? Um, I don't know if you've got Bibles, if you have an old school paper Bible, whip it out. If you're on a phone, get it out. I'm not going to think you're watching the footy or the Olympics, that's okay. Um, get your Bibles out because we'll be doing a few Bible verses to try and help us think things through. But it's okay, I'll read them out and I'll let you know where they are as I'm going through them. We're going to start easy. Page one, Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2. And I'll read these out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now some translations include the word desolate. So the earth was an empty, desolate, formless thing, formless, like it couldn't hold itself together, like it was prone to falling apart. It takes an act of God, no less, to effect creation. It's his blessing through the work of the Spirit that holds it all together. The Spirit, that's why we call the Spirit the giver of life. But then Adam and Eve, quite illogically decide, we know what we'll do, we'll reject God and we'll go our own way. They're going to do without God's blessing, do without God's providence. You know the story. There's the fall, the consequences. So we really shouldn't be surprised when things go wrong. It's time we kind of take off our rose-tinted glasses and acknowledge from the outset that this world, this age that we live in, things will not only go wrong, but without God, it'll be really hard to make them right again. I think it's a bit like that parent or carer without whom the child's bedroom is always going to be a perpetual state of mess and untidiness. So where does that leave us? Even among the most well-intentioned Christians, things, things can 
and they do sometimes go wrong. It should be easy on paper to make peace between two believers, shouldn't it? That would be a mistake to assume that as Christians we are above and beyond conflict. I don't know if you've come across that kind of attitude that almost forces you to almost pretend you're okay. Pretend everything is fine when it's not. That's not at all biblical, can I just say, while I'm up here. You don't have to read too far into the New Testament letters to see the apostles having disputes, serious disputes amongst themselves. Whether it's Paul and Peter, whether it's Barnabas and Paul. Today's passage, the conflict arises in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And it's between Saul and David. Both men of God, both anointed and appointed by God through the prophet Samuel. And guess who has the unenviable task of making peace between them? Poor old Jonathan. So maybe a little, a little bit, uh, a bit of background. Uh, the Lord, you know the story about, let my people go, yes, from Egypt. The Lord has rescued them from Egypt. And all through that time, the Lord has been their king. He's been providing for them ever since. But the Israelites, like Adam and Eve, illogically decide to reject God. They want an earthly king. So Saul is chosen. He becomes king. His son and heir is Jonathan. David actually just comes out of nowhere, some little place called Bethlehem, yeah? He's not related to Saul, but he's been winning lots and lots of spectacular battles. You know the one we all talk about in Sunday school, David and the big giant Goliath. But in addition to that, he's been winning lots and lots of battles. David has become so popular that Saul is now worried David's going to come for his throne. That's the background to how we open this passage with Saul telling his attendants in court to go and kill David. So a life is at stake. This isn't just a reconciliation about two people agreeing to disagree. There's at least one life at stake. You could argue there are two souls at stake if you count Saul's soul. I wonder, are these two, whose side would you be on? Whose side are you on of these two? You don't have to answer that one. So this is the mess that Jonathan is facing, right? Um, his own father, God's, um, the king of God's people. He, he's at odds with David, a man who is clearly favored by God, who has recently become Jonathan's bestie, his best friend. Surely Saul and David both men of God. Surely they should both be pulling for the same team. But Saul's lens for deciding what is right is going to be skewy. It's focused on himself now, not God anymore. In Saul's self-righteousness, he is jealously defending the things he holds dear. 
He's defending his position. He's defending his family. He's only concerned about himself. I don't know about you, but I'm finding that very familiar. It's a bit too close to home. And I think this is what we tend to find at the root of most of our conflicts. People who stop thinking what God's about and it becomes about me and me and me and I'm right and my righteousness. There's no doubt the soul has lost his way, but let's not be too hard on him. Instead, maybe we stop and we ponder the times when our own self-justification has led us to do things that we now regret, things we're ashamed of. Like Mike would have said in one of the previous um, sessions, you get that log out of your own eye first. There's a lot to learn from Saul, even Saul. So, where are we? This isn't just a messy bedroom. I reckon the kids think the parents have gone away for the week and they've started making really poor decisions. They're inviting their friends round for a house party and we all know how that ends. It's never good. It'll make us popular. It feels right. It feels good, so why not? All too often, when we're stuck in these disputes, we can only see things from our own perspective. One of us, or maybe both parties, have just stopped considering God's kingdom and God's will. And then there's Jonathan. And I think this is what's so wonderful about today's passage. It's really encouraging what Jonathan actually does. Through his actions, he shows us that yes, this world is very messed up, has a tendency for things to go wrong all the time. It's predisposed almost to chaos and darkness. Yet there is hope. Hope for peace, hope for reconciliation, hope for healing. I think what we read of Jonathan, what he's doing is borderline miraculous. But you've got to ask yourself, why? Why would he do it? Why is he even attempting to be the peacemaker? Where does that instinct come from? In the passage we read, it seems clear. Jonathan's response isn't just concerned with David. I don't know if you caught that. Jonathan has got God on his mind. And it's on that basis that he's attempting the reconciliation. In verse 5, we read, as he reminds Saul, he says here, The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it, and you were glad. Not David. David was an instrument of the Lord. It was the Lord that won the victory. He makes it really clear to Saul. Don't you go sinning against God by killing David because he's never done you any harm. Jonathan's reason why he's attempting reconciliation is so very important. It's all about the Lord. He's, motiva he's motivated by um, a correct and proper reverence for God. 
they're having fun. <laughs> uh, which is important because making peace is always costly, it's always difficult, and without the right motivation, we often just don't bother. And when we do, sometimes we just end up forcing our will on other people. What's amazing is that Jonathan had every reason not to want David around. You get that, right? Without David, Jonathan would become the next king of Israel. But through his actions, he reveals he has a heart aligned with heaven. He has a heart that feels like God. See, we happen to know the significance of David's line. Don't forget that Jonathan probably didn't. He might have sensed something. We know who's coming from David's line, don't we? Jonathan just acts prompted by God's spirit. He's not giving in to the chaos and the darkness within. He's looking to bring peace and reconciliation. He aligns himself with the work that God is doing. The work that God has been doing since the fall, since Adam and Eve. If you allow me, I'm going to read from Colossians 1, verses 19 to 20. There are going to be a few of these, I'm afraid. But it's good because they help us. So Colossians 1, starting from verse 19. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I find that amazing. We are told that God is reconciling all things, whether in heaven or on earth, to himself through the work of his Christ. And when speaking about unity between Jews and Gentiles, the Apostle Paul also writes in his letter to the church in Ephesus about this ongoing work of reconciliation. In Ephesians 2, when our verse 15, Paul writes this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body, when he brings them together, to reconcile them both to God through the cross. And by doing that, he put to death their hostility. Making peace, effecting reconciliation, that's God work right there. God work. We can't lose sight of the fact that making peace is in fact what Jesus is about when he's there on the cross, arms stretched wide, taking the nails for each and every one of us. Jesus was doing God work. To paraphrase Mike from yet another of the previous talks, Forgiveness and reconciliation, these are not nice optional extras. We're talking full-on God work here. And this is what Jonathan points to from way back then in the Hebrew Bible. 
he foreshadows Jesus. He was a, a Jesus type. I don't know if you've heard that phrase used before. Jonathan was a Jesus type. In other words, he was one person who would alert us through his actions to the things that Jesus would be coming to do. Jonathan, like Jesus, was the son of the king. And even though he had every right to inherit the kingdom, gave it up. He gave it all up for the sake of another's life. He pursued peace between his father and David. Yeah? Because we see in verses 6 to 7 at the end, Saul actually rescinds the order to have David killed. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was restored just like things were before. Now, just a little side note here. Um, if you only skip two verses forward, you find that Saul reverts back to type and now wants to kill David again, and he's chucking spears at him. So it transpires that ultimately, Jonathan wasn't successful in his reconciliation, but that's not the point. He made the effort. And we see Jonathan here doing this work. He's doing this work between Saul, the current king, and David, the next king. And what he does is he places the king of kings right in the heart of his efforts in order to bring peace between these two men. He's trying to encourage God's way, not Saul's way, not David's way, God's way. What can we learn from Jonathan? Like him, can we start to recognize our dependence on God? When we're faced with conflict, whether we're involved ourselves or whether we're looking to help two other people reconcile, can we act in a way that just leans on God's righteousness, not our own? Can our starting point, can our starting point be a declaration of our need for Jesus? A need for Jesus who's been given authority to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. So when you ask yourself the question, why should we be peacemakers? Well, if we are to be followers of Jesus, his work is ours also, but only as we follow him. We need him to lead. In fact, doing the work of reconciliation and peacemaking is a sign of our new status, isn't it? Members of God's family. You'll recall, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called what? children of God. By acting in faith as he did, Jonathan has claimed that identity for himself. He's now no longer just King Saul's son or David's bestie. He's acting in a way that is fitting for a child of the living God. This can be our identity too, our identity in Christ Jesus. We're in the family business now. And we become children of God who naturally just take every opportunity to spread the peace of Jesus whenever we can. So let me summarize and I'll close. There are lots and lots of practical ways to be a peacemaker. 
We can learn many different strategies and approaches. We can learn to reduce stress, discord, reduce the hurt. We can be more productive as a church, yeah? But underpinning all that, Jonathan's story reminds us of a helpful way to think about why, why we'd even bother. So, two whys. Yes, things will go wrong, things go bad, even among our saints. And I mean that, saints, that's what we are, saints. When one or both parties start to think in terms of self rather than God, it's inevitable that things will just stop working together for our good, yeah? We shouldn't be overcome by this, we shouldn't be frightened by it, we shouldn't be surprised by, by it when it happens. Just look to make peace and put God right back in the center. Point two, why be peacemakers? Because this is how we do God's work. By believing and following Jesus, the one whom he sent. We follow Jesus in his work of reconciling all things to the Father. I'm going to invite the band to come up if they can. Maybe for the next song, we can just remain seated and just engage with what we've heard as we sing. I'll close in a short prayer. Loving Father, I know you have a purpose behind these talks we've been having here at St. John's on being peacemakers. Come, Come and mend what is broken. Come and bless our hearts, Father. When things aren't right among us, may our starting point be a recognition of our lack, our own need. May we be able to let go of our self-righteousness and run to our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we look to him for his righteousness. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.